Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of On The Way Home. I'm your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. This podcast is brought to you by the good folks at Blue Door, who are providing services to people in York Region, Peel Region, and Durham Region with housing, homelessness, and employment services, many vulnerable people all the time. It's and in partnership with the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. Uh, if you don't know about the Canadian Alliance, they run all sorts of different campaigns to support our most vulnerable across the country. Plus they do a lot of training too. To check out all their work, go to www.caeh.ca. My kids say you don't have to say the www dad before each time, but listen, I'm old and I'm gonna stick with what works. Uh, we have a great guest today. Um, and we'll get to that guest just in just a minute. There is lots happening across the country right now um, in the area of housing, homelessness, health, uh, and employment, all the different pieces we talk about. Just recently in Ontario, the Ontario Superior Court, um, there's a challenge in Waterloo about clearing an encampment. And that judge actually ruled that you couldn't clear the encampment and, and Listen, this is not the exact ruling, but unless there is ample space for people to go to inside the emergency housing system, and that certainly wasn't the case in Waterloo, and it wasn't just about enough, enough spots, but enough spots that were needed, whether you needed a spot in a family shelter, youth shelter, uh, senior shelter, escape, uh, women escaping violence, that kind of thing. Um, so that is that is a huge ruling, and I think people are pretty excited about that. Um, but there is a flip side to that too. So I just want to tell you, we're going to have a podcast around that with uh, Lolani Farha and uh, Kayla Schwan just talking about that ruling, uh, all about it, the good things and some of the concerns too that we still have to work through. So always uh, big things happening uh, in the sector across the country. We know that Canada wants to build um, I think it's 3 million homes by 2030 if they're to cut chronic homelessness in half. Uh, which is their goal by 2030. Uh, and in Ontario right now, the province is pushing to build 150,000 homes uh, a year. Currently, we I think we build less than 100,000. So lots of work to do and, and lots of controversy around how that is being done. But this podcast is all about bringing together folks who talk about the challenges to this work, but also the solutions, what's happening. And, and quite often when we have those conversations, more often than not, we don't have the voices of people with lived experience or what we call lived experts to weigh in and say, hey, this isn't what we, you know, what I think we should do. This is what we should do. And I know that because I've been through that experience. I can share that experience with you. So today, our guest, Earl uh, Thiessen, really is someone who has that lived experience and now is the executive director for o Oxford House Foundation of Canada, right? Doing incredible work there. And he's going to tell us all about it, but he's also going to share his story um, which, you know, I, we, we talked just briefly before this, Earl and I were, were talking about the, the courage it takes to do that. I think listeners, not only, you know, when they're sharing their story uh, and and it's powerful and it helps for understanding and sometimes it, it, it also, um, for people, they look at someone like Earl and say, hey, he knows, he's been there, he knows what he's talking about. Um, you know, I could, I could push through too, right? But it also can be extremely traumatizing for people to, to retell their story time and time again. So it's important that they have a good support system around them and coping skills, which Earl has said he absolutely does. So I want to welcome our guest. Um, Earl, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> well, Earl, we start the show every time with the same first question because it's a little bit different for everyone. There's similar themes. Uh, but it's a very personal question, and that is, what does home mean to you? 
Home for me uh, is all about safety now and 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 comfort, right? It's uh, and that's just uh, like we our name is the Oxford House Foundation of Canada, but we provide safe recovery homes for people. Uh, it, it's all about safety for me and and belonging and feeling comfortable. Yeah, that's that, that's huge, right? I mean, so many people that comfort level, that safety level, they they don't have it because they're either on the street or staying in, in, in housing that is precarious, where one day from the next, they don't know uh, if their safety is at risk or if they're not gonna have a home to go to in the next day. Well, that's that's just it. I, I, I missed security there because that is a huge piece. Uh, as we know, people, you know, rotating in and out of, uh, of housing, you feel a little more secure when it's your home. Right. And it, it gives you that space where you can look at yourself and see possibly areas that uh, that you want to work on. Interesting enough, Earl, we were uh, so uh, our, in our region, they're trying to build a new men's emergency and transitional housing um, project. They, we have one right now. It's just at the end of its life. It's, it's really old and uh, not in great shape. And they're putting it in another area. And, um, you know, where the residents were saying, of course, the NIMBYism popped up. We, you know, it, it's mm -hmm. like the idea, just not here, right? And, and one of the things I said, listen, our guys don't want to be here either. It's not that they don't, said, but they don't have a choice. Emergency housing is never yeah. actually anyone's first choice. They'd rather have a key to their own front door where they can have total control over guests coming in, their own safety, have that security you talk about. So they don't want to be there either. But unfortunately, until we get enough, of uh, supportive housing with the wraparounds. This is this is the reality. This has to be there. Um, so yeah, security is huge. Now, I want to hear. Uh, I've read about it. I've done a lot of reading around because uh, you've been very generous and sharing your story. But can you talk a little bit about your journey uh, for our listeners? Yeah, one hundred percent. It's. Um, I mean, not to start from the beginning, but when uh, when I was young there was uh being indigenous and not uh not really identifying as indigenous there was there was a lot of shame when we were when we were young and and this this stems from my mom the intergenerational trauma right my mom didn't identify as indigenous either and and she was straight from the reserve so there's a lot of childhood trauma that that uh that happened and happens uh and by no means what I put blame on the generation then uh, of parents, it was a different time and a different uh, lifestyle. And they grew up different, just like we're growing up different now. And my kids are growing up different. But at some point, uh, the cycle needs to stop. You know, um, I was pretty active when I was young, uh, a lot of sports, we were always outside of the house, right? It, it wasn't like now where where electronics are uh, taking over children's lives. But uh, we were outside a lot and and that's actually probably was good and bad because uh, i was in situations where i didn't have any guidance or any peers around me it was people just like me and the first time i got blackout drunk i was 12 years old right and, and my daughter's 12 right now and i couldn't even imagine or fathom the idea of of her drinking like that let alone drink so and and that just goes with the times but <clears throat> There was a lot of partying in my house, uh, my parents' house, uh, a lot of drinking, uh, alcohol ran free, 
the fights, you know, the arguments, uh, a lot of that uh, people don't realize the, the effect that that has on children later in life, right? Uh, being spanked, you know, that uh, I, I mean, I've, I'm not saying that I haven't spanked my kids because I have with my hand. I would never think of hitting my kids with a belt or a metal ladle, uh, which, you know, I don't want to, you know, say it was normal, but that's, that was a lot of the way that it happened when we were kids. And now you look at people from my generation and the generation right after, there's a lot of childhood trauma from, from those instances, right? Um, I think a lot of that uh, led to me being unable to cope with, uh, with those issues. And then, as, again, as a young man, uh, a year older than, than when I started drinking, I had experienced uh, sexual abuse from an, an older gentleman at, uh, at a house when we were, we were drinking and I blacked out. And uh, that's when the sexual abuse happened. But I didn't, I didn't talk about it. I, I held that in for 24 years, almost a quarter century. I, uh, I didn't speak about it. The shame, there's a lot of shame associated with that. But after, after that uh, incident, I, I was all about masking the pain. Uh, I call it uh, unable to deal with the emotional response of the trauma. But that it just, it just escalated from there. Right, I, the drinking, the drugging, uh, just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I wasn't uh, a social drinker. I couldn't have a couple. I drank until I was blacked out, until I was numb, which is the case a lot with uh, a lot of people now. And I, I mean, I don't mean to speak in general terms about everybody, but in my 13 years at Oxford House and my seven years on the street. I've had a lot of discussions with people and I would say 95% of those people identify childhood trauma, whether it's physical, sexual, mental, emotional, uh, spiritual abuse. Uh, and I, I, spiritual trauma, I should say, because it wasn't until I connected with my indigenous culture that I actually started healing. Um, it, it's, it's been, it's been a lot of work uh, and, and soul searching and putting myself out there and making myself vulnerable. And uh, not that there's any difference between genders, but there's, a, there's a, an image that men think they have to portray uh, and not speak about things like that. And, and that's, that's where, where we, we just get carried away with the drugs and alcohol to try and mask the pain. The trauma, as you talk, we've had uh, uh, Tom Walker on here who's a trauma specialist, and he, he's talking. He said exactly what you're talking about. He said uh, so many people don't even know their their what what their trauma is, and mm -hmm. it can be triggers. He said, you know, someone could come in the room, and whoever maybe abused them had a beard, and that you walk in the room, and that triggers the trauma, and they're, mm -hmm. they're you know two stages back. Uh, the addictions take over that kind of thing. Where we're, let's talk about some of the keys to recovery for you. Seven years on the street, tough times. Um, what what were some of the keys to your recovery to push you through? A lot of it was uh, was was 
one being honest and and basically surrendering and surrendering and putting all my my safeguards and my walls down that was that was the first step i mean once i ended up on the street it, it, it was trauma compounded right there there was so much happening so much that i witnessed but uh, it wasn't until uh, in 2007 when my partner then was murdered on the street, uh, part of a stabbing spree in Calgary during the stampede, uh, that her life was was taken, that I, I really didn't look at what I was doing, what what the effect that my addiction, my homelessness, my trauma actually had on other people, right? I, I My parents were terrified. My mom even told me before she passed away, she said that, uh, every time that there was a story on the news about a homeless person freezing to death, that right away the panic set in. Uh, and, and then I remember again my, my parents saying to me, because I did see them when I was on the street, they did come visit. They didn't give up on me, but uh, they, they did say that the, the one thing that we want to see before we leave this earth is to see you get your life together. And my mom my mom got that. I, I spoke about it at uh, when we were giving, when I was giving her eulogy at, at her funeral. And I said, mom, mom got her wish. She got to see her son clean and sober and, uh, and succeeding in life. <clears throat> Sorry. And that means a lot to me. And that's what I was thinking about. I was, I was in the drunk tank, uh, 11 warrants, uh, thinking that this was it, I was going to jail. And then I, I kept thinking, this isn't, this isn't why I was, this isn't why the creator put me on, on mother earth was to die a homeless man that kept running through my head and running through my head. And then I kept seeing an image because in, in Calgary, and I'm, it's probably pretty similar across the country. When a homeless person passes away, there's posters up on the shelter doors and everything saying Memorial for so-and-so. And I had a visual that had that that poster up that said Memorial for Earl Thiessen. And I just, I was, I was defeated. And I went in front of the JP. This was the small window. And, and you know, it's, it's kind of hurtful saying it, but it's those small windows where people change their lives. The, the small windows of opportunity that we give and that are given to us that help people just like me, uh, walk through those doors and change our lives. But I talked to the JP and, and uh, he, you know, said I had 11 warrants, asked me if I had anything to say for myself. And I said, yes, I need help dealing with the murder of my partner and dealing with, with my addictions and my trauma. And he, he asked her name and I, and I told him Jackie crazy bull. And uh, he had heard about the, the murder up in, in Edmonton, which is where he was, uh, over the intercom and uh, he gave me my his condolences and he said uh, i'll tell you what i'm going to release you on your own recognizance which never happened before right <laughs> they, they they always thousand two thousand dollars bail and i go in so uh when he when he said that he said i want you to go get the help you want you need and i want you to clean up these criminal charges so that morning at about 6 30 uh, I had, uh, I limped up November 7th, 
or November 13th, 2007, I had uh, limped up to Renfrew Recovery Center and uh, and had gotten in. When I say limped up, it's because I had gotten uh, beaten up by the police uh, and they had, had broken my toes and uh, really lumped me up all over the place. My eye was shut. But uh, <clears throat> I'd limped up to uh, Renfrew Recovery Center on November 13th, 2007, and I've been clean ever since. And then I started looking at myself. I, I started... I knew I had to heal. I knew I had to speak about my trauma. That was the key, the absolute key for me to start my healing journey. I'm still healing. It doesn't stop, right? But uh, that was the key was for me to speak about my trauma. So, and and here's, a, here's an interesting story. I had gotten into detox uh, and I had a treatment date for January. This is in November. My treatment dates in January. Right away, I started freaking out. I'm going, oh my god, I'm going to end up back on the streets. You know, am I going to live? Am I going to OD? Am I going to, you know, go to jail? Am I going to miss my treatment? Everything just started setting in the, the initial panic. So, uh, and that's where one of our housing models was. Uh, I developed for the organization came from was from that experience. But I had called a lady I knew at Alpha House. Uh, she worked at Sunrise uh, Healing Lodge and at the Alpha House Society, which is a medical detox and shelter in talks for, for the homeless. But I had called her and she said, Earl, give me, uh, give me a bit of time here. Let me figure something out. And she had called a couple day, uh, a couple hours later and said, uh, I've got you your treatment date in five days at uh, sunrise. And uh, that was my second window of opportunity that came by reaching out and asking for help. And, and then I went into Sunrise, which is uh, has a, the spiritual focus, the indigenous focus for uh, spiritual healing. And I reconnected with my roots and, uh, and I started my healing journey. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Wow. Uh, an incredible story, Earl. Thank you so much for your courage to, uh, to share. Um, how much I would ask to you talked you touch a little bit on this. You said, you know, you've used your experience and what you do now, now as executive director of Oxford House. How much does your uh, lived experience play in your day to day work that you do? It's my best education, right? You you can't you can't nothing against formal education. You can't uh, you can't go to university and or college and and get what a person like me has. And I'm 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 not unique. My story is isn't unique. And I, and I say that repeatedly. There there are many people out there like me, and and I didn't get to where I am by myself it took a lot of support along the way a lot of members and, and employees of, of oxford house have been a part of that journey my family my extended family a lot of people have uh have shown me the understanding and have supported me so I, for me i just can't believe 16 years ago i was sleeping under a bridge you know 
in the middle of winter. I spent a whole winter outside, woke up many times, not feeling my toes or my fingers and going, uh oh. And then, and then, you know, thankfully they, it, it came back, but, uh, I just gifts of recovery. I say this, this, this is, this is why I am where I am. Uh, somebody saw the founder of, of Oxford house. When I, when I moved into an Oxford house, the house was a bit of a disaster. Uh, it, it wasn't, to me, it wasn't being run properly. Uh, and that's, that, that comes on not just the organization but the support worker and the residents there's a level of accountability you have to have for yourself and for other people when you're recovering it's not it's not easy right so uh and i changed the way that house uh, operated the way the house looked the people that were in there and the founder of uh, the oxford house foundation ron mcmillan saw something in me that i didn't see and he had actually talked to, to my wife karina uh, she was in an Oxford house at the time, and uh, she, he asked her, do you think Earl would be interested in working with us? And she said, I can ask him, and and she relayed that message to me, and I called Ron and went through the interview process, and, and here I sit. And that's that's just by him having faith in, in I can't believe it. I can't just can't believe I'm, I'm here, right? And, and to be able to help so many people develop these housing models that haven't been developed and, and that... It puzzles me. I think I think the lived experience piece and putting in the safeguards for the security of the home is what made the big difference, right? We just did a, a, a huge announcement here uh, Friday with the uh, government of Alberta uh, supporting our pre-treatment homes, which which is an uh, I don't think it's a new concept, but the Oxford House pre-treatment housing model. Uh, it's it's a one of a kind, right? It's it's. I'm sure there's people out there that have similar uh, housing models, but not like this one. And uh, and that's that's because it was developed through lived experience. Maybe a little bit of fear from when I was <laughs> when I was uh, sitting in detox, wondering where I was going to go. And and that uh, I just it's not it's not for us. People goes well. Would, would you would you share that model? Of course I would. Why wouldn't I? It's not that would be pretty selfish of me not to share that with people say in Ontario or, or in the States or, or anywhere in uh, across the world. It's uh, it, it's for people wanting recovery. It's not for me. It's that would be, that would be selfish. Well, you know, and absolutely. We're going to ask you about that. I think we see <laughs> that uh, day in day out when we have that gap that you talked about where people are feeling what you felt. I don't know if I'm going to make it. If treatment doesn't open up, if it's a couple months away, I'm, I'm minutes away from relapse. Like, you know, I need it now. So that is wonderful. Hey, I know Oxford House is a lot of stuff. Tell us a little bit about o Oxford House. What does it do? What is it? What, what is its purpose? Uh, what, what are its services? Yep. No, 100%. Uh, Oxford House uh, started in 1995. So we've been around for a long time. It's 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 peer supported recovery housing is is what it is, and I emphasize the peer support because when you're recovering with like minded individuals, like you just it just makes it more. I don't want to say comfortable, but comfortable. Uh, you can be sitting in the living room and 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 starting to experience certain things and and you you need that release to speak about you just turn to your roommate right that that was huge for for me but oxford house is, is peer supported recovery housing we have uh 
with a high level of accountability for people, right? You, you, you have to want to be, you have to have that want to change your life to, to really fully benefit from, from what we do. Cause we have, we have a lot of services that we are connected to employment and education, volunteering, uh, but it's uh, it's it's a structured environment, right? Everybody, the homes are five people for the most part. Uh, everybody in the home has a role. There's a president, a secretary, a treasurer, chore coordinator, and a safety supervisor. Uh, everybody is accountable not only for themselves but to their housemates, right? Everybody in the house has a chore. Uh, the house the houses take care of themselves as as a little family, but. Uh, you know, and and then and then we evolved as as time went on, right? The the first model that I developed was uh, we call entry level housing, uh, which is for the chronically homeless and institutionalized. Uh, it's a it's a longer period of time for you to get active and get those resources, right? Uh, we partner with uh, Prospect uh, out here in in Calgary, and that's where people go to get their resume writing skills. Their their, uh, you know, their interview skills, entryway into education if they need to maybe do some upgrading. Uh, we're connected with so many colleges, AJ Academy, Bow Valley, Louis Real. There, there's just, there's so many that uh, that we're connected to that it's really easy to get them the, the server. I shouldn't say easy. It's easy to set them on the path. And again, we don't do the work for the residents. We open up the doors, they do the work. There's a, a level of accountability with, with Oxford House. And, and that's, uh, I don't think the residents see it right away, but that all has to do with building self-efficacy for them, right? To build up their self-esteem, their self-worth. You you come into to an Oxford House after being chronically homeless or, or doing a long stretch of time in and out, in and out, you don't know where to begin. And, and that's actually where the model was developed. I was speaking to a resident that was leaving uh, and I asked him where he was going, right? I said, did you have a slip? And he said, no, uh, the guys in the house asked me to leave uh, because they can after you get a disruptive behavior for not being productive in the home. Uh, and I said, why not? And he said, well, I don't, because, I, you know, they said, because I'm not active, I'm not looking for work, I'm not going to school, I'm not doing anything. And he said, I'm a I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I don't know how to write a resume, right? I don't know how to do a job interview. I don't know how to dress. So I'll just go back to the streets. I said, no, you won't. You'll go back into the house and, and we'll figure this out. And that was, that was where the model was, was developed again, lived experience. Right. And then, and then we also, uh, we also, it started off as a collaboration, but now it's just Oxford house, uh, running the whole housing model, our indigenous peer and culturally supported recovery housing, right? For, for men and women, we have, we call them healing homes because that's exactly what they are, right? Is it's a safe place for uh, our people, our indigenous population to come together. It doesn't matter your, your cultural setting, creed, DNA, Blackfoot, you all come together and you, you, as we say, you, we share your, uh, you share your experience, strength, and hope with each other, and and you heal together, and you you grow as a family. And we do ceremonies, sweat lodges, sharing circles, uh, healing circles, elder sharing circles. You're allowed to smudge in the house. Uh, we provide that cultural support again through the government of Alberta with uh, with the funding through them. 
and then we have our pre-treatment housing model that uh, that was developed. It was it was years ago, but uh, and it was it was a lot of work. There was <laughs> people are going, how do you put five people fresh out of detox into a house and expect success? And that's not the way I developed the model, right? I I knew that that would be a disaster, uh, so I implemented what we call a house lead, which is a person that has. Uh, I would say midterm sobriety that's been in an Oxford house for at least half a year. Uh, we offer them the position uh, as a house lead to come in and, and help guide people uh, on their journeys. Uh, that was a safeguard when we started. We still have the house leads, but now uh, with the funding from uh, the government of Alberta, we, uh, we removed the barrier of cost. Uh, there is no cost to pre-treatment housing. We doubled the size. We now have 20 beds. Uh, we have addiction counselors in for the men's homes, for the ladies' homes, uh, that provide one hour of of just just beginner treatment, like relapse prevention, maybe some step one work if that's the route they want to go, self esteem building, just just to get them ready and get comfortable to take that next step in their life. So so going into residential treatment isn't such a shock, which it is for a lot of people. So, and it's filling that gap between detox and residential treatment, because I'm pretty sure everywhere that offers residential treatment has a backlog, a wait list. And that's where yeah. this model uh, comes into play and fills that void. A hundred percent. And many times, sometimes you're looking out of province for, for to, to get people in. And as you know, I mean, a, a lot of recovery is creating community. And so when we push people out of the communities they know, uh, mm -hmm. it can set them back as well. I have to tell you this, um, I want to talk a little bit about addiction. One of the most profound experiences of my life was going to uh, a good buddy of mine had his one year of sobriety. So they brought him in and they, they invite family and friends. And man, I think everyone should go to see something like that because you see that addiction, uh, addiction doesn't just pick on the, the poor. Or it doesn't just pick on. So you see everyone from all walks of life where you saw, sadly, you saw 16-year-olds in there. And you saw people that are clearly experiencing homelessness. You saw extreme wealth of people mm -hmm. that are in there. Yeah. People from every religious background, indigenous, non-indigenous, like in that room. And you'd have someone go up there and say, I'm an alcoholic, I've been you know, clean for 45 years, 45 years. And they're speaking. And then people who are you know, giving chips for a week. Or 24 hours uh so it really opens your eyes and says like it, you know it, it happens it can happen to all of us um and, and through through different circumstances what are in your eyes are the biggest misconceptions out there around addiction i think one of the biggest pieces is uh everyone thinks we're bad people we're criminals right we're beyond help uh, again, that comes down to choice, right? But there's there's stigma out there, and I I I'm one of the many people that want to break that, right? We've had uh, I don't want to say any company names, but we've had uh, executives in our homes, we've had oil rig workers, we've had city employees. It it doesn't. We've had moms, dads that are still in their marriage that need to come out and take some of that time to heal away from uh from the family but it's stigma is, is really really bad if people i wish i could speak to the whole world and show them 
that recovery is possible. Uh, my trauma, uh, you know, contributed to me becoming an addict, but that's not who I am. The person that you're speaking to now is is who I am, right? And I've I've dedicated my life to helping other people just like me, and so have many others. I mean, the list goes on and on, and and society in general just needs to to take a look because I'm dealing with, uh, I can I can pretty much guarantee that every family out there throughout the family line uh, at some point has somebody struggling with addiction, right? And, and we hide that because it's shameful. It's not shameful, right? It's a result of trauma. It's, and people need to understand, right? I, I always say that uh, from my beginning, people say rock bottom, but it was uh, it was more of an awakening for me, right? And I and I always say by by Jackie's life being so selfishly taken, it inadvertently helped save mine. And I honor her, my mom, uh, all the people that we lose to addictions, mental health, homelessness. I honor all of them by doing what I do. And I, I will go to any means. It kind of drives my wife nuts because I'm always talking about recovery. And I get it <laughs> because it's just it's just what I what I do. It's it's my passion. And and I have all all types of even outside of Oxford else. I have parents calling me about their kids and stuff. And I work with them because it takes five minutes of your it takes five minutes of a person's life to stop, listen, and see what you can do to change that person's life. That's all it took for me. Was that JP giving me his condolences, saying, I'm going to release you on your own recognizance. Go get the help you need. Go get the help you want. Go clean up all your your past, your criminal activity. It was that small window that changed my life, right? And then the one, of course, getting into treatment. But it's don't society can't give up on society or we're going to implode. And and we're so division is not good right you you it destroys lives right you you can't you have to be kind you have to be caring you have to ask questions you have to say hello you have to smile yeah. it's not it's not a lie a smile can change a person's day right and stopping to talk to a person i always uh when it cuz you know i panhandled i see the panhandlers uh my wife too she buys food right gives them two bucks go get a coffee right i for me myself i don't give out more than two bucks because i know because of my lived experience if i got a 20 and i was uh battling addiction where i'm going right yeah. so food is always the answer uh for us two bucks to get a coffee and it was actually i'm gonna i'll tell you a little story with my kids and this is part of me breaking the cycle when we're in the driving and they we we run across a, a homeless person or a person holding the, the cardboard sign, uh, I roll down my window. I give them my card. I don't say, you know, you need to recover. That's that's not my approach. I say, here's my card. I've been where you are, right? When you're ready, call me. Throw my card in your backpack. When you're ready, give me a call. Here's two bucks. Go get a coffee, Right stay warm, stay safe. And I drive away and my kids are in the back seat. And then one time uh, I was driving through, uh, we were driving through and uh, talked to a person and, 
or no, I drove by the guy. We waved, smiled, and, and drove by. And, and my kids said, Dad, well, how come you didn't stop? And I said, because I don't have two bucks. And they said, but you didn't stop and give them a card either. And that right there shows that my kids are paying attention to what's mm -hmm. happening. And it doesn't have to be monetary value that you give somebody. Right. That was that was a proud dad moment for me. <laughs> as it should be, as it should be good for you. And you're right. It is that humanizing thing, that kindness, too. I love what you're saying. Uh, we recently uh, in York region have gone through a bit of a nimbyism thing where people are talking about us and them. And we're <laughs> there is no us and them. There is us and, yes. uh, humans. And they're part of the community. You know, everyone's part of this community, not just who we choose. Um, and, and so it's a tough run to, to help convince people but you know it's interesting you say everyone's family and in my family uh, i've got uh, three siblings and i have a sister who's been in and out of homelessness has addictions mental health issues she's now 52 badly it is tough it is tough because her her mental health challenges don't really allow her to get her diagnosed so you know fights the help that she needs to do it and, and it's just cyclical um so it is tough you're 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 right, and and understanding that, and and seeing why we we use language like people experiencing homelessness because we don't want you to see the addiction, we don't want you to see the homelessness, we don't want you to see the panhandling, we want you to see the human. And that JP saw the human in you and was human that day, and said, "Hey, uh, let's give a chance." I, I talked to about my my uh, friend who's now been seven years uh, clean. Uh, you know, he his his ex wife used to call me and say, "We need to do." uh the intervention we need to do this and i i would say to her and tell you you talk about accountability doing the work i said until he's ready to do the work until he tells me he wants that help we can do everything we want but it's mm -hmm. not going to stick he's got to and eventually he got there it was a painful process and i told i just always would say to him when you're ready man yep. you're ready let, let's do it I, i'm in 100 percent, and uh, he always remembers that because i think if i i would have uh, he would have just pushed me away right when he wasn't ready well and then to have the services available uh the right services right uh, yeah. uh a good friend of mine uh she's actually the ceo of the calgary homeless foundation it's it's not about uh it's not about the house uh the you have to have housing that's right for the person yeah right it, it's not about the person being right for your housing uh, Patricia's a brilliant lady. I, I totally appreciate her, but that's, uh, and that stuck with me, right? Because I'm developing housing models, but, and that's, that's to fit the person. You know what I mean? It's, there's a, there's a big difference. And, and we've kind of, we know, we know that all of us that are in this sector, we know that, that people are complex. There's a, and, and that's another reason why, uh, when it comes to mental health and addiction and medications, there are so many restrictions with treatment centers and housing providers. We were the first uh, housing provider, and I can say this because I remember the discussion with Ron, uh, the founder of God Rest His Soul, when I said we should try get somebody in here, she's on methadone, we should, we should allow her in and he said there's no way that's a drug and i said it's 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 not really it it is a drug in the pharmaceutical sense but this is helping her stay clean and sober off of her drug of choice right 
and and then we allowed Suboxone, and then we allowed Sublocade, uh, Seroquel, which is a mental health. Uh, we just we allow we opened up the door yeah. for people well, to yeah. understand that there are medications that actually do help people. There is a purpose for them, and and it helps people get to that next step. Well, it's harm reduction, right? I mean, you're, you're saying, okay, like the, there's, you, you're right. There's steps. The whole, you got to break clean and do that will not work for everyone that um, mm -hmm. it, it just doesn't, or it forces people back out. So you have to have that flexibility. I want to ask you this last question. So the government of Alberta, they, they, they say, Earl, come on in. We're going to open up the vault. What do you do? What, was, what, what are your hopes and dreams? What would you do if money wasn't an issue? What could we do in this sector? What could you do at Oxford oh, to really make a man? I, I wish <laughs> I would have I would have peer supported recovery housing every corner of the province. Uh, Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, Red Deer, Fort McMurray, uh, and so on and so forth all over. I would have recovery housing on First Nations land, right? Well, I mean, it's all First Nations land, but on our allotted plots, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have uh, just every model in groups of four, right? Just like the medicine wheel. It's groups of four for everything. Have a staff, have the wraparound supports. And I mean, all that would take is probably about $50 million and I could uh, do that. Now, if Canada said that, that would be amazing, right? Because <laughs> it is needed. This is, I know there's a lot of private centers and everything out there and and they've got to do what they got to do but if there were if there was non-profit housing in the states there's over 2000 oxford homes if i had 2000 i don't even know if we could yeah 2000 homes in 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 canada we would make a massive dent in homelessness and addiction and mental health right and i'm all about partnering and collaborating with people so you bring all the other organizations there's a lot of us around and you guys collaborate, get out of the silos, right? Where where you're not holding on to your funding. If it's there, we all work together and we just come together and, and help people help themselves is what I say, right? I totally believe in meeting people where they're at. I understand that, but let's not leave them there, right? Absolutely, well said. Um, listen, finally, if people want to find out more about the work you're doing at Oxford House, if they want to donate, if they know someone who needs help, where do they go? Uh, to uh, our website, uh, OxfordHouse.ca gives you all the information you need. There's actually an application uh, portal on there. There's a donation portal there. Uh, and as we all know, the nonprofits, we, we really rely on, on donations and, and I've worked with people across, across the country, right? Uh, I've helped set up recovery homes from Fredericton, New Brunswick to Victoria and, and everywhere in between. And, and a lot of people just want to come together, but you can't do that without the funds, right? So do donations are everything and support. And we're here for, we have people coming from those reaches of Canada to Alberta to get the help they need, right? And now pre-treatment housing is free. There is no cost. You come in, your food is supplied, everything is supplied. You get in some structure from our addictions counselors and you're getting into, into treatment, right? It's, it's, it's a blessing for me to, it's a gift of recovery for me to even be sitting here uh, talking with you, Michael. I, I mean, I, I, 
I shouldn't be. The cards were stacked against me 16 years ago until I faced myself, right? And and it's just an honor to be here. And it's, uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to know what Blue Door does and, and how you support our marginalized. Well, thank you so much, Earl. Thanks for having the courage, sharing your story. Hey, I, you know, as tough as it was, that was part of your journey. It got you to the place you're doing now where you're making massive impact. You're changing and saving lives. And we appreciate that. Thank you so much to you and the team at Oxford House for all you do and for sharing your story and for coming on the podcast. So appreciated. Of course. Thank you, Michael. Man, I, what a great story. What a great guy, too. And listen, you know, you he is just the nicest, nicest individual, and not just because he's on this podcast. Like, from the minute I reached out to Earl to say, hey, we should chat, it's the most polite, upbeat, nice guy. Um, when he said he you know, feels like he's been given a second chance at life, uh, he is living that and changing lives and, and, and really, um, you know, helping others and, and uh, give it back. So, so cool. Uh, check out Oxford House, oxfordhouse.ca. Be part of the solution. Give what you can. Be involved. If you or someone in your family needs help and you're in the Calgary area, uh, please reach out to Earl and his team. Well, another great episode of On the Way Home, and I guarantee only one thing. We'll have another great one next week, and we'll see you then. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.